what do you think about, you know, kind of what we're seeing with consumer behavior and people sort of remaining resilient despite worries about the economy? I have this thesis that uh, the American consumer mimics the American government. And so the American government has continued to have a spending problem and they've just figured out how to finance it all with debt. And the American consumer has a spending problem and they've just figured out how to cons- uh, finance it all with debt, right? Like there's almost this like very uh, uh, kind of a medic re- response back and forth. And maybe actually they're learning from the government uh, implicitly. But if you look at the American consumer, like they're definitely still spending. Um, they're definitely doing it with uh, credit card debt. The scary part is that credit card, the average credit card interest rate today is over 21%, right? Which is the highest it's been in 30 something years. And so, yes, yeah, some of that is interest rate driven. Uh, but also when you have people who continue to fall behind and you look at the income inequality gaps and, you know, kind of savings rates and all these things, they still need to buy things. And so what are they going to do is they're going to use some sort of financing mechanism. And some of that is like buy now, pay later and kind of the invention of like new twists on credit. Uh, but some of it's just like your classic credit card. And so in some weird way, culturally, we've taught people to be consumers and we have to understand that you can't unwind culture from someone just because the economy is tough. Yes, there will be some people who spend a little bit less or try to you know save a little bit more, but Actually, the trend is once you teach someone how to spend, they will continue to spend and they'll just try to figure out a way to finance it. Welcome to Sliceonomics. I'm your host, Kyla Scanlon. Today, we're talking with Anthony Pompliano, better known as Pomp. Pomp is an entrepreneur and investor and host of the Pomp podcast. We talked about what happened with finance, what it means for the crypto industry at large, and how traditional finance has evolved over the past couple of years. We also talked about technology and entrepreneurship and how the VC industry is going to make a change into the future. Finally, we talked about what it means to have hope in a really uncertain world. I hope that you enjoyed the episode today and remember to like, subscribe, and share with a friend. Hey, Anthony. Thanks so much for coming on Sliceonomics. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. So number one, congrats on the new baby. That's very exciting. Uh, I appreciate it. So I first want to talk about something that is much less exciting than a new baby. I want to talk a little bit about Binance. Um, so CZ pleaded guilty. It seems like Binance is in a lot of trouble. What do you think this situation with Binance means for the crypto industry at large? Yeah, I mean, at first, we've got to just talk about like regulation. Each jurisdiction or each geography has different regulation. And so some things that are legal uh, in some jurisdictions are not legal in others. And obviously, the United States still remains kind of the, the greatest capital markets available. And so lots of people want to get into the United States capital markets, uh, but they may be doing things that are legal elsewhere, not legal here. Um, and so one of the beauties of America in general is that people will go to court or kind of go through our judicial system and figure out who's right, who's wrong. And so we've seen regulators say, hey, you're doing something wrong. And actually, the courts have disagreed with them. In this case, it looks like there's been some sort of agreement where the participant, CZ, Binance, uh, the regulators, and also the judicial system is basically accepting, okay, yes, something did go wrong here. Something broke the rules. And now we just have to figure out like, who did what and what is the punishment going to be? Now, the ramifications of it, I think, are actually the more interesting conversation. And, and the reason just being like the American court system is pretty good. It'll figure out kind of you know what the punishment is. And, and once we get that information, people will you know pontificate over whether it's the right punishment or not. But the ramification is that now I think Wall Street and regulators are looking and saying like, OK, all of the quote unquote rule breakers have been cleared out. 
Now, I'm not saying I agree with that, but I do think that there's this feeling of this is a big milestone. And now only highly regulated U.S. based or U.S. centric companies are going to dominate this industry. And so the like conspiracy theorists are like, oh, this was the plan all along. The people who maybe are not conspiracy theories, they're saying like, OK, at least now we've kind of like hit this milestone. ETF can get approved and more capital can flow into the market. My guess is, regardless of how we got here, uh, it is a pretty big moment, and it's less important the milestone. It's more important the way people perceive the milestone. And so if they think like now everyone's regulated, everyone's U.S.-centric, and capital is going to flow in, like that's great for, as a tailwind for the industry and likely will lead to higher prices over time. So do you think that all the, um, I guess, all the dust has been cleared from the crypto industry? Do you think that all the bad actors are out? I, I guess mean, that's a hard question I don't, to answer. Well, I just don't think that uh, bad actors are cleared out of any industry. Like you could go to the traditional financial system and be like, there's a lot of bad actors that, you know, seem to pop up every couple of months. Um, everything from people just making bad bets that, you know, become systematic uh, risk in, in terms of like the Bill Huangs of the world, et cetera, all the way to, you know, people will point out like FTX. And I always say like, OK, yes, obviously that was really bad and, and they broke the rules and they shouldn't have done what they did. But also, we had, you know, traditional banks that were filing for bankruptcy and basically saved by the government. And so I, I tend to think it's less about like crypto versus uh, other markets. And it's more of just like when you're dealing with money, when you're dealing with regulation, when you're dealing with, uh, you know, kind of incentives and greed and, and egos and like all these things, human nature doesn't change. And so like there will always be bad people in every industry. Uh, and really the uh, challenge for regulators and also market participants is like, clear out as many of them as possible and allow the good actors to kind of do the things that they're they're trying to accomplish. So what do you think the next wave of crypto looks like? Is it the approval of a Bitcoin ETF? Is that going to is it just going to become not necessarily more mainstream, but do you think it'll just become more integrated into the way that we view capital markets now? Yeah, it's hard. Like Bitcoin, you know, I don't know, maybe five, seven years ago was definitely like the contrarian bet, right? More people didn't like it or didn't think it had value than people who did. Uh, now, I don't know. Like it, I talked to a lot of people across Wall Street and people I think now are just like, OK, this is going to be a thing. Uh, what's the return? They'll debate, but it's not going to go away. And so I do think to some degree it's kind of become a mainstay and, and it's got acceptance. Obviously, national uh, you know, media outlets cover it on a daily basis, et cetera. What is more interesting, I think, is like how much of a return is left. And so people will point, especially in the Bitcoin community, they're like, oh, it's the best performing asset over the last 10 or 15 years. True. But that doesn't mean it's going to be the best performing asset over the next 10 or 15 years. And so if you start to look at, like, let's say a Bitcoin ETF, I do think it'll get approved maybe, I don't know, in the next three to six months is probably my guess. But, you know, I'm an idiot on the Internet and I have no clue. So, like, that's just a guess. Uh, but let's say that 40 or $50 billion flew into the ETF over like a year, right? Uh, $40 billion, I think, was as much as GBTC got to at one point. So mm -hmm. like that, we'll kind of use that as a benchmark. Um, the entire Bitcoin circulating supply kind of market cap today is like $750 billion, And 70% of that hasn't moved in at least a year. So if you kind of think about like, all right, 30% of a $750 billion market is still a couple hundred billion. And so when you look at that, you're like 40 or 50 billion is like a lot, but it's not really, you know, like we're going to like double or triple the size of the market cap by that capital inflow. And so people, I think, kind of forget how big Bitcoin has already gotten. It's almost a trillion dollar asset. And so, yes, tens of billions of dollars coming in will have an impact. But does that mean the price is going to go up, you know, 20x? 
that I have a harder time believing. And so I, I think it's an exciting development. I think it's an important one. Um, it signals kind of a regime change, if you will, in terms of the regulatory landscape. But I do think that people should be cautious about thinking, okay, just because 20 or 30, $40 billion can come in the market, Bitcoin then becomes a million dollars. Like that's much harder for me to wrap my head around. Yeah. Yeah. And there's also the scarcity aspect too. Like there's only 21 million. So I feel like all of that, like, do you think that Bitcoin is still going to be the safe haven asset or do you see the other um, cryptocurrencies rising up to take its place? So when I think of safe havens, I don't think most investors on Wall Street think crypto in that same conversation, right? They're like, uh, safe haven, I want bonds, I want you know something else. Uh, two of the data points that are really interesting, though, uh, in the traditional financial system, one is uh, if you look at like TLT, TLT is down. I think it's like 22% over the last like three years or something, right? Or maybe five years. And it just shows that like the asset that people thought was a safe haven has not performed well in quote unquote chaos. Now, there's a whole bunch of reasons why and interest rates and like all these different things that have led to that. But I do think that there is some portion of the population that's like, okay, TLT didn't do the thing I wanted it to do. On top of that, there's an article recently in Bloomberg uh, by um, a, a reporter who explained these dividend ETFs. In 2022, the dividend ETFs saw record capital flows. Like there's never been more money put into these ETFs in history. But they didn't perform well. And so in 2023, there's almost been no capital inflows into the dividend ETFs. And so, again, the quote unquote safety trade didn't play out. And so if you ask like a Larry Fink, I mean, one of the craziest comments I've ever heard on national television is Larry Fink saying that people buying Bitcoin is a flight to quality. As a Bitcoin holder, I loved it. Like, thank you, Larry. But uh, not exactly what you would expect from you know the BlackRock CEO. And so I think his point was just like, yes, people are trying to figure out like where can you hide? Where, where is safety? And maybe Bitcoin becomes one of the assets that people will buy. I don't think it'll be the only one. Um, and if that occurs, like then, yeah, over a long period of time, people want safe haven assets. They'll buy it. And that'll be great for Bitcoin. But I, I don't think that anything past Bitcoin really is even in the conversation or people are looking at Ethereum, Solana, you know, or anything else as, as uh, potential safe havens right now. And there's been a lot, obviously, that's happened in the crypto industry, FTX, now Binance. Um, the system has lost a lot of trust, I think. So do you think that, you know, as we're talking about inflows, as we're talking about it, maybe being somewhat of a safe haven, how do you think the industry should rebuild trust? Or do you think that's something that they'll have to do for people just to kind of forget? For a long time, I've talked about Bitcoin being this really weird asset where uh, if I go talk to someone on Wall Street, Bitcoin is the most risky asset they have in their portfolio. If I go talk to a really hardcore crypto person, they're like, Bitcoin is boomer coin and like not risky at all. Why would you ever put your money there? Right. So it kind of like sits in between these two worlds. I actually think trust has a very similar kind of stratification where if you go and you talk to the hardcore crypto person, they're like, I don't trust the legacy financial system at all. I don't trust the Federal Reserve. I don't trust the banks. I don't trust like any of these people. If you go and you talk to the hardcore Wall Street person, they're like, I don't trust anything in crypto. Like they're all, you know, fraudsters, blah, 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 whatever. And so what I think is going to end up happening is companies like Coinbase or others that kind of straddle this line between high regulation, but also kind of crypto ethos, right? Same thing, uh, some of these companies from maybe the traditional financial system, ARK Invest historically has been somebody who's in you know the legacy world, but also very kind of sympathetic to a lot of technology, innovation, uh, Bitcoin, et cetera. And so I think that middle ground is probably the area where you get the biggest overlap of trust between old school and new school. But again, trust is like a very individual thing. You know, you and I, we trust the banks to put cash in in the United States. If I go to another country, they don't trust the banks at all. I mean, you know, if you look in Argentina, like Malay is basically saying, hey, I'm going to get rid of the central bank. 
And if somebody came and said, we're going to do that in the United States today, there's no chance they get close to the White House. Right. And so I, I just think that it's um, it's a really hard topic because it is so specific to geography and individual. But I do think that there will be kind of a, a centrist view where trust starts to coalesce and it's going to straddle the line between traditional uh, world and also kind of the, these crypto natives. And getting into the traditional finance a bit, uh, it feels like that has sort of lost a lot of trust too, kind of like it's sort of broken in a way, like, you know, concepts like the efficient market hypothesis, intrinsic value, like they don't really seem to be holding up. Um, what are your thoughts around traditional finance and these concepts that aren't working like they used to? Yeah, I think everyone's got a soapbox they like to stand on. Mine is definitely uh, reminding people efficient market hypothesis is wrong, and so is intrinsic value. Um, you know, uh, I've spent a lot of time, probably too much time. I, I maybe have lost brain cells searching the internet for people that everyone else thinks is really smart saying the same thing. And I, I recently found uh, a clip of George Soros giving mm -hmm. a speech, and he was basically like, "Efficient market hypothesis is wrong. I can prove it because that's how I got rich." Um, and you know, it's kind of like a paraphrased way of what he was describing. And it, it's just this idea of like, theoretically, it should make sense, right? If you, I, and everyone else has all the same information and we all are going, you know, short, long, whatever, there should be some equilibrium. Obviously, uh, there would be no alpha. We should all just like buy index funds and go home if there was a, a truly efficient market and, and there was no kind of mispricing. So that one, I think is uh, relatively when people stop and think about it, it's like, okay, cool, I got it. Intrinsic value is one of the things that, I mean, there's an entire investment strategy uh, around value investing that uses that terminology all the time. Now, what I do agree with value investing is like buying assets for less than they're worth makes a lot of sense. Like everyone loves a discount. And so if you can you know, have the, the proverbial margin of safety, like no brainer, great way to invest. But the idea of intrinsic value, if I was to ask you, you know, what is the intrinsic value of gold or a company? People debate it. And so naturally, if people are debating what the intrinsic value is, then it can't actually be intrinsic, right? If you calculate it one way and I calculate it another way, then like it ultimately is just a manifestation of like our mind. And what you're really looking for is not intrinsic value. What you're almost looking for is like, what is the consensus market value? And sometimes those things are conflated and people want to like, you know, kind of use them interchangeably. But really what you want is, okay, the market believes something is worth X. I believe it's worth Y. And that difference is what you're looking for. But the idea of intrinsic value is just uh, our, our almost like intellectually lazy way of describing the market consensus. And so uh, I do think that um, uh, it doesn't matter for most people investing. Like what most people are buying the S&P 500, they don't give a shit about efficient market hypothesis or intrinsic value. And I wonder sometimes if uh, these more nuanced conversations are just ways for you, me and a bunch of other people on the internet to entertain ourselves while we wait for asset prices to hopefully go in the direction that we want. Do you think that's what it is? Do you think it's just people like standing around the campfire and just having small talk about asset prices? Yeah, of of course, like if you're arguing over intrinsic value of an asset, uh, the odds that you are actually a really good investor is quite small. Like if you look at the best investors in the world from track record standpoint, that's not the stuff they stand around talking about, right? Like they're actually worried about things that are driving investment returns. Um, and so uh, a, a, um, one of our partners in one of our businesses, uh, Will Clemente, he's a, a young kid who um, started this business. He, he's incredible as an analyst in you know, the Bitcoin world, et cetera. Uh, he recently found a clip of Bill Ackman talking about Citibank uh, during the 2008 financial crisis. And in it, uh, Bill said he was sitting there eating lunch or uh, eating breakfast. He saw something come across the TV about Citi, uh, and they were basically uh, somebody was going to buy like the subsidiaries of Citi. And so he said, hmm, that's interesting. What are they going to do with the parent company? 
And so he went back to his office, him and one other analyst spent four hours. They did a deep dive on the 10Ks and kind of really did their work. And they came to the conclusion that uh, actually the stock that was trading at like $1.50 was worth like $11. And so he said for the next four days, they bought up 42% of all volume. Right. And so he didn't go talk to people. He didn't argue with folks about intrinsic value. He didn't do, like he just saw an opportunity. He did the work very quickly. He realized, OK, odds are in my favor. And he had a, and he made a bold bet. And he made a lot of money from it. And so I think that uh, the people who, you know, are, are kind of arguing about this stuff and debating, especially on Twitter, um, it, it's just more so like the intellectual stimulation. But when you actually see, you know, like how is the sausage made some of the best investment shops, like they are just very quick. They know exactly what they're looking for when they find it, they execute and everything else kind of falls to the side. Yeah. And they look at the data points that no one else would really pay attention to because they're not like pretty, right? Like they're not beautiful data points. They're looking at 10Ks and things like that and watching the TV. Right. Yeah. Well, well Stan, Stan Druckenmiller's got the funniest one to me. Uh, he supposedly him and Paul Tudor Jones, the way that they convinced each other to buy Bitcoin. I forget who called who. But uh, in 2018, one of them called the other and was like, did you know that 65 percent of these idiots on the Internet who were holding Bitcoin at 20,000 are still holding it at like four thousand dollars? Like they basically just wrote it down and didn't sell. And the other one was like, oh, that's interesting. Like, maybe it's going to go back up in price. I'm going to buy some. Right. And then they waited, you know, two years or something. And then in 2020, they both came out publicly and said that they own Bitcoin. But like that doesn't seem like that's really high analysis. Like that almost seems like you're more so trying to figure out what's the crowd going to do than trying to really understand, like, what do I think the intrinsic value of Bitcoin is? And so, again, it, it, it's uh, some of it's science, some of it's art. And the best investors seem to kind of put those two things together and, and be able to find uh, the best opportunities. And do you think that's the same in the VC world as well? Like they're, you know, trying to find innovation, trying to find founders that are special. I think most VCs are full of shit. I say that as someone who has managed multiple venture capital funds, yeah. uh, I, I say it in the sense of just look at the returns, right? Now, there's a bunch of data that's come out over the last couple of weeks around uh, you are a top 5% fund if you return 3x DPI over a fund life. And so again, it's, this huge promise of what venture capital was supposed to do. Actually, I would even argue what venture capital used to be. If you go back into, I think it's like the 50s, maybe early 60s, the very first Sequoia fund, I'll butcher the exact numbers, but it was something like they had nine companies in the fund and three of them they incubated. They ended up returning, you know, many multiples of the fund size. Uh, and like 80% of the returns came from the three companies they incubated because they had a big outsized ownership of it. And so this game of like, hey, I'm going to invest capital and own 1% of a business and I need a $5 billion outcome in order to actually drive a return for my fund, it's just really hard to make the fund math work. And so what ended up happening is we got into a world where everyone had this momentic response. Oh, there's a hot round. Everyone throws capital at it. Valuation goes up. I get a smaller percentage of the business. Now, all of a sudden, the math doesn't work. Even when I'm right, I don't make money you know, on the overall fund size. And so the people who I spend the most time kind of paying attention to or, or, or trying to talk to are the folks who want to continue to invest in innovation and in what I would consider like kind of high risk companies or fast growth companies, but they're doing it in very unique ways. So Y Combinator is a great example of, you know, somebody who has kind of their own, uh, you know, uh, kind of slant on this. But also if you even look at companies uh, or, or businesses like Founders Fund, right, they're incubating some of these companies internally and they're able to fund the first, you know, one, two, three rounds. And so what I think we're going to see here is a great uh, kind of uh, split. You're going to see a lot of the like really bad venture capitalists. They all raised money between like 2010 and 2020. 
and now their returns are showing. So it takes seven to 10 years to know if they're good or not. There's a lot of people who now the jury is saying, you're not good at this. Like you, you should stop. And the jury ends up just being the people who allocate the capital to them. So they won't be able to raise future funds and, and they'll kind of, you know, just disappear. The other investors, though, they're going to suck up more capital. So capital actually may become more concentrated and the returns may become better because they have a different model. And so it, it's a weird thing where venture capitalists maybe took the place of hedge fund managers, you know, in the like 90s where everyone wanted to be a hedge fund manager and everyone wants to be a VC. Uh, but again, like investing is really hard and there's only so many people who can be the best. And so I think we're going to see a very similar uh, thing that what we saw in hedge funds where just the best of the best and then there's everyone else. And do you think that'll change like the profile of the companies that are invested in? Like, obviously, you know, for the past few years, it's been a lot of bubbly companies like AI wrappers and things like that. Like, do you think we'll see hard tech, things like that getting invested in? It's interesting because, you know, Warren Buffett is seen as the the, the great investor. And when you, you talk to him about bubbles, he's like, I look for bubbles and then I buy I buy them. <laughs> right. Like, like basically he, he wants to ride the wave and, and kind of uh, participate in the upside. What I do think uh, is going to happen in venture is already really happening. Is just like there's been almost like a reset. The bad investors have continued to chase what now have been proven to be bad companies. The good investors have always been pretty disciplined, but even more so now remain disciplined around how do we invest in things that are really hard, that have a lot of asymmetry to them uh, and likely will be fast growth if they work. Like the whole idea of venture capital is really adventure capital. And so I, I had to remind myself, you know, every single day when I'm looking at companies, um, I, I recently looked at a business, uh, they for sure are going to make some money. But I had to say, like, is this an adventure or is this like I am literally just buying a stock before it's public and like it may go up 20 percent. Right. And so I think the more that you lean in towards the adventure part of venture capital, uh, the likelihood that there is the asymmetric return. If people just want to buy, you know, equity in businesses, then sure, you can do that. You might be able to make a little bit of money, but it's really hard to do that with a lot of capital and make the fund math work. Hmm. So do you see venture capital returning to like a Medici kind of model, like Renaissance era where they're investing in like these big, big ideas to help that out? I hope so. I, I don't know if I can predict that it's going to happen. Um, some people would argue it's already happening. Obviously, you see things like Anduril, you see things like SpaceX, you see things, you know, Varda, um, uh, Traba, et cetera. But uh, I think it's important for the American economy. Like one, one of the things I, I'm pretty passionate about and I think it's important to remind folks is like, Everything around us was built by entrepreneurs, right? Everything from the computers we're using, the internet was laid, like all the stuff. And yes, sometimes it's public funding that helps do that. But the government actually doesn't build that much stuff. A lot of times they just give money to people that are running companies to go and build the stuff. And so we need entrepreneurship, right? Whether it's small businesses that make up 50% of jobs in America or kind of these more high tech companies. Um, but if we had a true renaissance of entrepreneurship and, and kind of innovation, I do think that we can make the world better. And so um, I, I was talking to someone and th they said something to the effect of like, well, aren't all the problems already solved? Like, what other problems are there going to be? And one of my favorite examples to point to is this rise of autonomous driving, right? It's now uh, insurance companies are showing that autonomous driving is four times safer than human driving, right? Now, these are people who are betting in the market on that being true. So they've done their data that, you know, they, they feel very strongly that it is true. Uh, what is one of the downsides of autonomous driving? There is likely to be a shortage of human organs available for donation because human organs, most of the donations come from car accidents because instantaneous death. So now all of a sudden you get like this like very weird negative side effect of if autonomous driving actually solves, let's say we get to zero deaths on, you know, American roads. 
Now we have this other problem we got to go solve, which is, okay, now we have human organ donation shortage. And so does that mean we need synthetic or artificial, you know, human organs? Do we have to like figure something else out? Like what happens? And so it's this very weird uh, kind of systematic um, evolution where you solve one problem and in some cases, two or three other problems pop up. And so there's never a shortage of problems to go solve. What we actually do is we have a shortage of people who really are willing to go kind of take these things on because they're hard. And humans are lazy and we don't like doing hard things, which, you know, is human nature. Yeah. And you wrote an article recently talking about the consumer and like how the consumer, they might not like doing hard things, but they do like to spend money. Um, So what do you think about, you know, kind of what we're seeing with consumer behavior and people sort of remaining resilient despite um, worries about the economy? I have this thesis that uh, the American consumer mimics the American government. And so the American government has continued to have a spending problem and they've just figured out how to finance it all with debt. And the American consumer has a spending problem and they've just figured out how to cons- uh, finance it all with debt, right? Like there's almost this like very uh, uh, kind of a medic re- response back and forth. And maybe actually they're learning from the government uh, implicitly. But if you look at the American consumer, like they're definitely still spending. Um, they're definitely doing it with uh, credit card debt. The scary part is that credit card, the average credit card interest rate today is over 21%, right? Which is the highest it's been in 30 something years. And so, yes, some of that is interest rate driven. uh, But also when you have people who continue to fall behind and you look at the income inequality gaps and, you know, kind of savings rates and all these things, they still need to buy things. And so what are they going to do is they're going to use some sort of financing mechanism. And some of that is like buy now, pay later and kind of the invention of like new twists on credit. Uh, But some of it's just like your classic credit card. And so in some weird way, culturally, we've taught people to be consumers and we have to understand that you can't unwind culture from someone just because the economy is tough. Yes, there will be some people who spend a little bit less or try to, you know, save a little bit more, but Actually, the trend is once you teach someone how to spend, they will continue to spend and they'll just try to figure out a way to finance it. And so I think that it is um, not necessarily a good or a bad thing. It's just a thing that is and and seems to be persistent. What ultimately we're going to have to figure out, though, is both for the American consumer and for the country, how do we – tend to trend back towards some sort of fiscal responsibility or, or, you know, kind of um, uh, strength because we haven't even seen a recession. Maybe a recession comes, maybe it doesn't, but the, you know, kind of quote unquote knockout punch would be to be in a really weak uh, fiscal position. Then you get the recession. Then you've got to lose monetary policy. Or if you're an individual scramble to figure out how you can get some money, like it's it's just a really bad situation. So hopefully we don't see that. Um, But, but I do think the American consumer, uh, they haven't gotten the message yet that Jerome Powell wants to destroy demand uh, and they're still spending. Yeah, but people feel really bad. Like consumer sentiment levels are at an all time low. Do you think that's because of what's happening with the economy or do you think it's just a broader cultural trend of people just feeling down? No, I think people lie to themselves. We've become a country of pessimists. Right. Every single time you open up your phone, it's like a lottery of pessimism. You can go to any app on your phone and someone's telling you how the world's going to end. Someone's telling you how, you know, horrific uh, some event in the world is. And unfortunately, like there's always been horrific events in the world. There's always been war. There's always been famine. There's always been like all these negative things. It's just now thrown in your face constantly. And so it's very easy to fall into like the doom loop of the world is ending. My life sucks. I have depression, et cetera. Um, And so I do think that there's this like overlap between, uh, when people are surveyed, they're not lying, but they actually do have a negative sentiment, but it's not because of data. It's because of this more like psychological thing where they've been trained in social media algorithms, et cetera. Um, but if you can separate out sentiment from like action, I mean, we just had the biggest Black Friday and Cyber Monday in history. 
Right. So like you can say the world's ending and like, I think everything's going to be horrible. But if you then go out and you buy a, you know, 80 inch screen TV and drop a, you know, order on a cyber truck, like, you know, did, are your actions matching up with, with kind of your, uh, your words? No. And so um, it's just weird. I don't know. Maybe that's the U S economy today. It's like, it's just weird. Yeah. That's certainly the way to describe <laughs> it. It makes no sense. Um, but I think it like parts of it do make sense. Like, you know, it's been a tough couple of years. Um, and I'm curious, you know, going back to the point about, you know, Americans being lazy, do you think part of the reason that people are pessimistic is because more and more so they're lacking some element of purpose? Like, I just feel like there's a somewhat of a passion crisis going on. Do you do you see that as well? I think that's a fantastic point. Um, you know, it's well documented the decline of religion, which served as that uh, kind of purpose for some, you know, cohort of the population for a long time. Uh, patriotism is down, and, and kind of nationalism that served, you know, uh, a portion of the population. Um, even if you look at like companies, right? This is probably under discussed, but uh, maybe. 20, 30, 40 years ago, people would go to a company and they worked there for 30 or 40 years and they were like a company man or woman. And so like, that's a purpose, right? And, and now all of a sudden, if you hop jobs every two to five years, like that kind of gets eroded away. And so in, in some weird way, it, it's not just one thing. It's not religion. It's not just nationalism. It, it's kind of society in general. I read this book, um, if I remember correctly, I think it's called uh, Being Mortal uh, mm -hmm. by Atul Gawande. Um, and, and if I'm re remembering correctly, it's that book that talks about this idea that one of the greatest strengths of America is individualism. Like we want freedom. We, we want to be an individual, right? We, we don't actually want to live in the same home as our parents for a long period of time, et cetera. One of the downsides to American uh, uh, kind of society is individualism, because guess what? We have one of the highest rates of people who die alone. And they're not living with their family. They're in a hospital, et cetera. And so I think that's a great, although morbid example of, you know, Americans have in some ways shot themselves in the foot by pursuing the thing that we most covet. We also have taken away one of the things that maybe we were most blessed with. And so uh, I'm not here to say, like, I've got some solution. Like, I'm probably just as guilty as everybody else. But when you start to kind of think through this, you're like, yeah, there are ramifications for some of the decisions that we've made and some of the positions we've put ourselves in. Um, and, you know, maybe a, a politician, there's many of them who continue to say, hey, nationalism and, and a return to that would help. Uh, maybe it's religion um, in, in some way. You know, there's. Uh, movements like uh, EAC, like this effective accelerationism, like, yeah. like, is that the new religion? I, I, I don't know. But but definitely there, there's going people are going to search for some sort of thing to attach themselves to. And, and uh, maybe that's a good thing. Yeah. If it's not too personal to ask, what gives you hope? Like what what do you align with to give you purpose and passion? I, my, my biggest thing, um, well, actually, I say there's two things. Like one is uh, once I had my first child, I think you just realize like, oh, like, you know, it's kind of like the Lion King, like the circle of life. You're like, OK, I get it now. You know, I was a complete idiot and my parents are like angels for dealing with me. Now, this child, I hope, is like only half as bad as I was. <laughs> but like there was lessons, right? There was experiences. There's all this stuff that I got to experience with my parents. Now I'm going to get to do that with my child. And, and so I think just like having this belief that like, hey, we can make the world better for our children is like cliche as it sounds. I think that is actually like a huge thing that that I felt but only could feel like once I became a parent. Um, and then the second thing is, you know, I, I've done enough reading of history and, and kind of understanding uh, how these societies have kind of ebbed and flowed is like entrepreneurship and capitalism specifically can make the world better and can actually, um, you know, solve some of these problems. And so, you know, I talk about it a lot on Twitter, but it's like humans can do anything we want if we put our, you know, kind of time and talent in the right place. And so you can point to like the the really sexy things like, you know, SpaceX is launching rockets and relanding them and no one thought that was possible. But you also can just look at like stupid stuff. The, the other day I tweeted a video. It's a guy with a pontoon boat 
and he had taken a, the cab of an 18 wheeler cool. and put it on the pontoon yeah. boat and like, like stupid but yeah, also like cool. man americans are awesome <laughs> right like you know that guy's buddies are coming on the boat and they're taking photos and they're showing their friends or whatever and so it's like there's really dumb examples there's really good examples but but i think that the bigger picture is just like we can solve a lot of problems we can build things but it does take people who are willing to actually just go do it and um i think maybe it was patrick carlson uh from stripe uh tweeted one time and he said something to the effect of like once you realize everything around you was built by someone it then forces you to look inwards and like basically ask yourself, like, what have I built? Mm -hmm. And so may, maybe that is the thing that kind of, you know, spreads optimism is just like, hey, if we all, you know, kind of quote unquote work together loosely and, and kind of build stuff, uh, the world will be better in the future. Yeah, that's well, that's an amazing place to leave it. Uh, thank you, Anthony. This has been great. Where can people find your work? Uh, just go to Twitter. Um, thank you so much for having me. If uh, if people just go at a Pompliano on Twitter, uh, I, I probably spent too much time there tweeting stupid stuff. So they, they can find everything from there. Awesome. Thank <laughs> you so much. Absolutely.